Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the TalkScript podcast. I'm your host today, Nick Nisi, and I'm joined by my fellow panelist, Neil Roberts. Uh, it's an honor just to be nominated. And we've got a packed episode today with lots of special guests. I'd like to introduce you to our first guest, Max Haber from Bloomberg, where he's part of the team implementing the private named fields proposal in TS. And he also works with others on that, including Joey Watts and Michael Gunter and others. Hey, very happy to be here. Thanks for joining. Next, we have the program manager for the TypeScript team at Microsoft, and that's Daniel Rosenwasser. Hey, how's it going, everybody? And finally, we have uh, Ryan Cavanaugh, developer on the TypeScript team at Microsoft. Hey guys, glad to be here. First off, we're going to be talking about private fields in TypeScript. And as you know, TypeScript already has private fields, but they're making their way into JavaScript as we speak. So we actually covered that in episode 32 of TalkScript with Daniel Ehrenberg and Rob Palmer, where we talked about that now stage three proposal and what it means for the JavaScript language. Now we're going to talk about what that means for TypeScript. And the first big important thing is what do we actually call this? Since we have privates in TypeScript already, but now we have a different kind of private in JavaScript. What do you think? What do we call it? I think, uh, is the spec text going to call them private names in the ECMAScript spec? In the spec text, they used to be called private names. And now there are two answers to that question. So there's an internal type private name, and there's the syntax production, which is private identifier. And so the idea is use the description of a private identifier to look up the private name, which is a thing that cannot be seen or touched or spoken by human beings. And then that's used to look up things inside the object. So the property descriptor has a private name, but the syntax is a private identifier. Do I get that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I kind of like the term identifier. Like I think that it, even the way that you use the private fields in ECMAScript feels more like an identifier than like a named property just because of the way that you can't really dynamically reference it. I almost like hash identifier as a way of, of describing it. Yeah. Yeah. Hash identifier sounds nice. Yeah. I mean, that sounds good. How do you describe the field though? Do you say it's a hash identified field? Or a privately named field? So what are we calling it? We're calling it a HIF? Everyone please standardize now. Thank you. <laughs> Is that a hard, hard H or a soft H? Yes. <laughs> I like having the hash in there for sure. That's such a clear delineation between uh, the two different things that we're talking about. Yeah. If you think about it from like what's actually sort of happening or, or there's like this sort of desugaring that's intended, like you could conceptually think of these hash identified fields as a, you know, this transformation where you like turn this thing into something with a weak map. And like, if you think about this as like a key for getting an object, it really works out. But I don't think that's actually the way that most people think about the feature at all, right? Please don't think about it in terms of the down-leveling, please. No, absolutely not. I think about things in terms of implementation all the time. That's my favorite way. I think we do. And like anyone who has the benefit of like thinking about it that way and like understands all you know those features in combination, they're like, wow, that's really cool. I appreciate that. And then like... The other 90% of people are just like, okay, cool, these are privates, right? Like, that's really the meat of it. And they really shouldn't have to be concerned with, like, the underlying implementation or the conceptual de or whatever you want to call it. 
Do you think that if people think of it as just like private keyword, except it's enforced at runtime, do you think that's a good conceptual model? Because it'll work for 95% of cases. And then when they have three layers deep of nested classes and they use the same name for something that's static and instance, then it won't work like they expect. But if they're programming normally, then maybe it's a good model. Do you mean like three, like a class inside a class inside a class? Right. The, the interesting bit here is that the private identifiers are lexically scoped. So you can start to get conflicts when you have a class nested inside another class. And I would say that in implementing this in the TypeScript checker, that's where 90% of the effort went, was getting a nice error message for this case. <laughs> yeah, but it's important. But also, like, my thinking is don't do that too often. <laughs> like, do you really need one class inside another class that, like... We'll find a way to use it. We'll find a way. I'm sure, I'm sure someone will, right? But, like, and both classes need a private name, and both of those names need to be the same. Like, that's... Well, now that, now that you've said it, there's someone hard at work creating a new framework, like, based around having classes inside of classes. <laughs> Roundabout JS. <laughs> so maybe we should briefly discuss the differences between privates in TypeScript that have existed there forever and the new private identifiers that are coming as part of JavaScript. What are the key differences? So I think the first thing to think about is the runtime behavior. So if you use the private keyword today in TypeScript, something that people notice pretty quickly is that it's not actually private at runtime. So it's a compile time only enforcement. So at runtime, it's, it's just another field, the same as if you had set it any other normal way. The proposed hash private fields are truly, truly private. They did a bunch of spec work, let's call it, to make sure that you can't actually get at these values from anywhere except inside the class, no matter how hard you try. So that's kind of a, a trade-off because it's nice to, maybe you're doing a console.log somewhere and you want to read this private field. Well, you can't do that if it's hashtag private, right? So I think that's the major difference. In terms of semantics, in terms of where you're allowed to access these fields, it's basically the same. ECMAScript private fields allow cross-instance private access, so that's the same as in TypeScript. They're not visible from your derived classes, of course, because it's, it's private, not protected. The nice thing about the hash private fields is that you don't have the name conflict problem that you have in TypeScript. So base class and a derived class can have two different private fields with the same name, and there's no conflict there. So uh, that's one upside. And why is that exactly? Because it's totally private. You can't tell it's there. Right. Well, I, I think there's just like a, this is a thing that we got on our issue tracker many times in the early days, which is like, how come, you know, the derived class can't have like one, you know, a member of the same name. And it's because, well, they occupy the same slot at runtime in JavaScript, right? Like there really is just one name for this thing. Whereas privates just create a completely unique name for each class. And so they never trample on each other. And that's a perfect example of where this is not just a, a new syntax to do basically the same thing that you could do in TypeScript. It really is fundamentally different from that regard. And so with that, of course, TypeScript is bringing in this private syntax because of its commitment to being a superset of JavaScript, and this is going to be part of JavaScript going forward. I'm curious where you see the private keyword, where you see its fate going. Do you see it sticking around? Do you see it kind of going away or changing in some way? I'm hoping to add a bunch of keywords into ECMAScript that effectively do nothing, but like you can just put them behind like a var or let or const, so you can say private, public, protected, let x equal 10, just to intimidate new programmers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, synchronized void star star. 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm I'm joking there, and and I think Ryan has more context there for sure. But like when we were doing design time privacy modifiers, you know, in the beginning, ECMAScript already reserved certain words for like private, protected, and and the like, and so it felt natural. And so like ECMAScript still can do things with those keywords if it chooses. I don't necessarily know where we would use them at this point though, right? Uh, I mean, there have been proposals for like a private declaration in different locations so that like hash privates aren't only usable within classes, but they can be used in other contexts also. But I haven't seen any other uses apart from that. Like that's simply a proposal at this point, And I don't know what the status is or where, when or where, if it's gonna go forward. Maybe Ryan has some other thoughts there. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of kind of frequently asked questions that people have when they think about what the impact of the ECMAScript private fields is on the TypeScript private keyword. So I'll just go through them in a random order. The first one is like, are we deprecating the private keyword or deleting it? And the answer is definitely no. There are some good things about the TypeScript private keyword that are different from the actual hard privacy enforced by the ECMAScript private fields. So people like these, like in a lot of cases. So like TypeScript's private fields show up in like json.stringify, which is like sometimes good, sometimes bad. You can access them from outside the class if you're like willing to work around the compiler and like that can be good. The second question is, will TypeScript downlevel private keyword to hashtag private? The answer there is also no. This one's a little more subtle because one thing we're very careful about is not doing type directed emit. So like if you say like this.foo, it's always gonna be this.foo when we emit it. If we wanted to turn that into this.hashfoo, we would actually have to figure out decisively what the type of this is to know whether or not to write .foo or .hashfoo. And that's just something that we've taken a hard stance that, that we just don't do that. And we'd actually probably break some programs if we did that. You also run into problems that like the differences between the TypeScript private and the hashtag private become a lot more apparent once you start thinking about what that would mean, right? So like, you know, you cast this to any, you access something from your drive class, you get it, like blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, you can, you can kind of say that, that that should be undefined behavior, but I mean, people do it anyway, so what are you going to do? Is TypeScript going to support hash private? Obviously, yes. I think the big caveats there are about downleveling. Another thing that you want to think about is what you're targeting. If that's ES3, ES5, ES6, ES next, whatever, the downleveling for ES6 is going to turn into something involving a weak map, which is an ES6 and up only feature. And it, it's pretty gnarly. It's not quite like normal TypeScript downlevelings where you would recognize the code that you had written. The good thing about this is it does preserve that hard privacy semantics, which is something that people who want hashtag private fields really do want. So that's really good. The downside is that you can't have weak maps on an ES5 runtime, and there's no good way to downlevel or polyfill weak maps in a good way either. So if you're targeting ES5 or for some reason ES3, you just kind of can't. If you're targeting ES6, it's, it is a weird downleveling. So I would encourage people to think about what their runtime targets are going to be before they jump all in on using the new private fields over the existing private keyword. So the transformation for private named methods, we convert the method to a function and transform the call sites to call the function instead of the method. And then on top of that, there's the branding check so that you can access from the outside. And the way that the branding check works is that when the constructor is called, uh, we put the this inside a weak set. And then later, when the function is called, we just check to see that we've seen the instance before in the weak set. And this is so people can't break into the privacy by using function.prototype.call or .bind or .apply. 
Does this mean that each private method gets you a, a new closure per class instance? I think we share scopes where we can. And there are already a lot of scopes used in the emit in TypeScript, and there's usually one that we can use. There are only a few cases where we have to make a new one. So one notable one is the scope that's used for parameter properties and the scope that's used for fields. So just to like clarify, because I think it's like really hard to imagine, you effectively take the class that you originally had, you know, just put it in another function that immediately like returns the class. Within that scope, you have a bunch of functions that are effectively privates and then the class that you're actually returning. And then within that function scope, you've also got a weak set. And so each of those functions checks whether or not whatever's calling them is in that weak set every single time, right? Yeah, but the idea right here is basically that you're creating a whitelist of instances that can access the private fields in, in the constructor, right? Take the method, turn it into a function, and add the instance to the whitelist. So then that's what makes it so that when you do binder call, it's just going through the exact same system that you were using before, right? Like you can't, because it's set up within the function and it's set up related to that specific instance, you can't like just call a function and give it a different object. And then, then it's like, okay, <laughs> right? Because it has that whitelist for what objects are allowed to call it. Yeah, exactly. And this is why I would be hesitant to call it a a weird down level or a weird emit because the spec actually mentions weak map. We ended up being able to use weak set for method, but it's the same sort of concept, your whitelisting. They actually specifically mention weak map semantics. And you'll notice if you make a class with a single private method in it, you'll see almost exactly the code that you wrote, except the method has become a function and there's one or two lines to make the whitelist. So I think it's still relatively readable and What's really nice about it are that the semantics are spot on. Nice. And so uh, to be able to use that in, in like an ES5 environment, you also do have to provide then polyfills for weak map and weak set, right? You can always simulate a map, not with O1 lookup for objects like a real map, but you can simulate a map with a list in ES5. But what is, I think, impossible to do is get the weakness of the weak map and the weak set which means that the only way we could provide a down level is if the users were willing to accept leaking memory like crazy. And I don't know very many users like that who want to leak memory like crazy and also really, really care about hard privacy. I think it's potentially possible to quasi-emulate weak map semantics, but only if you're willing to give up the privacy. It's kind of like a catch-22 because it's actually a funny thing the entire idea of like the correspondence between a weak map and private fields is actually sort of one of the justifications for why people were okay with even putting weak map into the spec in the first place, which was that like there is a way to make it somewhat more efficient. So a weak map effectively, you know, this is just a map that doesn't hold strong references to the original input keys so that you know the thing can be garbage collected if nothing else has a handle to it and the way that you can kind of you know make that somewhat more efficient is by inverting the structure of like how the lookup happens and so rather than like thinking of it as a, a map that has like some special runtime support what happens is that the runtime has like an actual special private fields attached to an object of a given instance that field actually points back to the weak map that you were 
trying to get at. And then basically checking whether or not you're part of the weak map is seeing if that field exists and points back to the weak map in the first place. And so that that like correspondence, you can do that at runtime also, but it means either that you have to have like some special way of like attaching a field to an object, in which case you've leaked privacy, because like now someone else can get to that field also. The trade-off is either you leak memory or you leak privacy. And it kind of shows like there is really this funny correspondence between weak maps and private fields in either direction, right? You can implement one sort of way or the other, I think, in either case. As long as you're like sort of the the author. The runtime. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can't stick a new private field on someone else's class. That's the thing, right? Um, you'd have to like pre-allocate it or dynamically allocate it in some way. So I guess not. But one is implementable with the other, and that's why weak maps, I guess, exist. Hmm. Yeah, but when we're saying that the emit is weird, I think if you look at the emit for classes, I think the down-leveling for classes is the best that it could possibly be. But if you're doing inheritance with these things, it's just not going to look very much like your original code. And I would say that down-leveling for private fields is comparable and maybe even a little bit closer to what you originally wrote. I think that's true. I mean, I don't use weird as a pejorative in this case. I just mean it. Uh, <laughs> it's not like, I think if you're writing types only TypeScript, you're pretty used to just like type annotations disappearing. And this is uh, not in that category for sure. You have necessary indirection, right? Like you, you kind of have to do something to break up the, this thing is accessed in this way here. Yeah. I mean, generators are weird too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Because I'm sure we're, we're going to get people show up and be like, why don't you just turn hash private into like three underscores? And we'll be like, well, <laughs> page long explanation. Nice. Let's say that I'm I'm working on this unicorn project where I'm just targeting the latest of everything and really don't have to down emit much at all. Would you recommend that I use the hash private identifier or continue to use the private keyword in places where when I write the code, I'm kind of thinking of it as runtime private, I guess, in my head, because I'm in a TypeScript only project, right? So I'm only thinking of it that way. So it doesn't really have much of an effect. Would you, would you recommend just going that way with the hash private then? I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind there. Recently, Ryan and I kind of went through... Um, like Chrome developer tools just to see, hey, what does it look like to debug something with a private field on it? So like you can't dot off of, of a variable that has a private field, but I think if I recall correctly, like maybe it allowed you to like you could enter the thing into the debugger or into the inspector and then you could expand it out and you could actually see the private field if you really care to. And so like that story is probably going to come together over time. It remains to be seen, like, you know, what is the story there? Because otherwise you might have some trouble. It also depends on, like, what kind of application you're writing. Like, are you a library or are you an immediate application? Because, like, in some sense, this privacy thing, you know, at runtime is a very defensive mechanism, right? And so, like, if you're a library and you really, really, really don't want people to access your stuff, like, runtime private is, you know, probably what you care to do. If you're a you know front-end application of some sort, then the question comes into like, do you have a purpose to be defensive against some other like third-party code? In the places where I've seen a need for hash private, it's been library authors who don't want people to dig into their internals. 
because then their library gets ossified and they're afraid to make changes because they'll break people. The alternative today is either, you know, you depend on people like respecting the fact that you have something declared as private and they're a TypeScript user, right? And so they'll just kind of be like, eh, I don't want to get an error or I don't like having any in my code base. So I'll just use this workaround. Or you do what like the React team does, which is you pick like the worst identifier in the world, which is like, do not use these internals or you will be fired. Or the, the Angular team does something which is also really funny. They use the look of disapproval, the, the three characters that kind of look like, yeah, the, like not an emoji, but like it's those three Unicode characters that like make you really, you know, you haven't done something right. This is like a call out to like, you shouldn't be doing this at all. I like those approaches also just because they're funny, but who knows if they're really effective. The other thing it makes me think of is like booking sites where you're like trying to buy tickets for something or whatever, and they put you in a queue and, but you can mess with the internals and like get to the front of the line and stuff like that. Neil, <laughs> I, I never do any of this stuff. <laughs> I, I don't always get the reservation I want at Disney World. But, you know, like, it seems like that would be a good spot as well to be able to kind of protect parts of code that you don't even want messed with at runtime by people trying to subvert policies that you have in place. And I think you should really think about your threat model very carefully if you're thinking to use hash private fields to solve that problem. I think a lot of people are maybe going to this and they say, well, if I use hash private, then no one can get my data, which is like true for half a second. And then you write some more code and it stops being true. Like, you need to be defensive against a lot of things if you, if that's your threat model, because let's say you push one of these values into an array. Well, have you checked to make sure that the array prototypes push method isn't intercepting your data? That's like a real concern, right? Does this get formatted into a string? Like, are you sure that all the form, like you have to have end-to-end code security for this to actually work as a data protection mechanism. And like library authors are often not even in this, this position because like, they're usually not defending against prototype mutation. So, you know, be really careful with your private data if you're, if you're super concerned about it. When you're in the business of doing all your validation on the client side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that true, by the way, the thing about uh, jumping the queue by like changing some client side variables? Like, have you actually done that? Um, maybe. I <laughs> love <laughs> Um, but in defense of private fields, I'm not sure there are that many applications where it's really about security. If you look at them and think, oh, there's some weird way you can bust these things open if you turn the browser upside down and you shake really hard. I do have to say that this is some pretty hard privacy that we're talking about, especially for a language like JavaScript. I want to compare to C++, where you can always hash define private public, and then everything's public. Or in Java, where you can use the reflection API to go in and figure out what all the methods are and get some weird way of calling them. So really what JavaScript has is kind of special, I think. It sounds like such a sweet sentiment. (laughs) It's so special. I think it's cool where the language is, that we're on the cutting edge and introducing features that are inspired by things in other languages, but I think in some cases go a step further. I would also be remiss to not mention like closure privacy as an existing thing that people have been able to do for a long time. And I think that's maybe the right mental model is that this is like as good as closure privacy, which is another like very strong guarantee that JavaScript's had for a long time, which is nice. And actually on that note, um, I mean, like the debugging story for getting to the internals of like a closure record, the tooling has gotten surprisingly 
good for just at least being able to access some of these things, even if it isn't everything in the current closure record. Sorry, not to go too far on a tangent. What is the state of the art debugging of closures? Let's find out. The thing is that the optimizations leak through a lot. Like, you know, if you have a function that doesn't actually use certain things that are lexically scoped, if it doesn't actually use the things, you won't be able to, like, expand out the closure record and see, like, oh, I can access, like, the add function, right? You Like, you can't do that because it's not used in the capture of that closure, even though it's accessible, so... Fun stuff. About the debugging experience, I've noticed that it's not too bad in Chrome Canary for private fields. In fact, we had mentioned console.log before. When you console.log in the Chrome Canary debugger and object, you can see the private fields. It's up to your perspective on whether you think that that's a, a good thing or a bad thing, but it is convenient. Yeah, it's really nice. It's unfortunate that you can't like instance.hashprivate.something from the console. I guess that would be ambiguous because multiple names from different class hierarchy levels could be there. But I mean, like, are there ways to, like, just read the entire memory layout of a program? Like, if so, eh, I don't feel so bad about, like, leaking that in the console. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't something that you necessarily have to go change all of your private keywords into hashes right when it comes out. There's a lot of different things, as we just discussed, you have to take into account before you decide to to use them uh, coming directly from... TypeScript privates, uh, for example. Yeah, sorry about that tangent. About that, uh, one of my favorite features of privacy in TypeScript is actually missing for hash private, which is private constructors. So obviously, JavaScript doesn't have method overloading. And if you want to provide more than one way of making a new instance of your class, it's kind of weird if one of those ways is to new the thing and the other one is to call a static create method. In cases where I have factory functions for making instances, I would really love to have a private constructor. Private keyword can do that. And for hash private, we've reserved the syntax so we can add it later, but it isn't yet spec'd. So if you want private constructors, got to use TypeScript modifier private. And I know I'm definitely guilty of, like in tests, for example, casting things to any and then accessing privates, uh, which I wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, that's actually a philosophical thing that goes beyond TypeScript in the testing world. You know, there's a question of, you know, should you test the private data or private methods and functions in your application? And I think the answer for me is sort of like, it depends, right? Like, there are certain legitimate use cases for like unit tests where you just want to test a function or something like that. But in the case of private methods, like why is it a private instance method instead of like some function within your application that you might be able to test offhand? This is one of those things where like if there's a group of programmers, you can just show up and be like, hey guys, accessing private stuff from unit tests, go. And then you like walk away and you come back an hour later and they're still arguing with each other. <laughs> yeah. Vim. Yeah, the other thing that's weird about hash private is you have to choose between tabs and spaces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, the reason that I dodged the earlier question about should we like migrate to hash privates or not is like, you know, I certainly have my own personal opinions and I have my own opinions about testing. But speaking as someone like from the TypeScript team, we try really hard not to be prescriptive about these kind of should this be legal? Should I do it this way? Should I do it that way? Questions. And we're going to support private for the rest of our lives. We're going to support hash privates as soon as they get into the spec. And it's it's going to be up to users to to pick one or the other. And unless there's like a super clear reason to like truly deprecate something, we just kind of don't. So I, I try to 
keep my opinions to myself on these matters because we do have to support both no matter what I happen to say on a podcast. Does that mean that um, there's going to not be an option to make it so that private transpiles to a, a hash identifier? Due to the type-directed emit restrictions, we're, we're not going to add that flag unless, well, I mean, never say never, but we're never going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Adding a flag, that sounds like a lot of fun, too. We love to do that, but uh, <laughs> but we really don't. So, yeah. I wanted to say that I have this way that I prefer to use TypeScript. I like to use it as JavaScript plus types. And for that reason, I do appreciate how the current private modifier doesn't do any name mangling or weird emit because it really is a type-only feature now. And so you're still writing JavaScript when you use hash private in a way that you're not really when you're using enum. I agree. I think that that's one of the biggest benefits of TypeScript is is that viewpoint that you can have, especially when you're trying to sell it to a company as something that they should pick up. It's just JavaScript, but it helps you. So it's got types. It's, it's just a tool to make you write better JavaScript. Anyway, does the TypeScript team maybe plan on using privates in the TypeScript code base? So we have like effectively no classes in our main code base. So it doesn't really come up, I guess. You know, I talked about threat models earlier. We do have some classes like in our unit testing infrastructure. Those have zero threats. So I don't think we're in any, any rush to convert. I mean, we might convert a couple just because like, it's fun to try out new stuff and we want to make sure that we dog food some language features. But given the fact that we want to run the TypeScript compiler on older runtimes, like I think we still compile the ES5 compatible JavaScript for the TypeScript runtime itself. So that would definitely preclude us from using private fields. Yeah, and moving to ES5 was like a semi-big thing when it happened like a year or two ago. We realized that like we were using certain methods from ES5 anyway in certain places, and then we'd have to like back out, and we eventually just said, all right, we're just going to say we're dropping ES3. We kept inserting like array.foreach calls into our code base, and then this like one guy would show up on the issue tracker and be like, you're not running on ES3 runtimes anymore, and we're like, oh, sorry, one guy again. Right. And then we eventually like realized like we were sometimes you know adding ES six features and and that we've been more intentional about avoiding, but you know I, I think it's still important to have like ES five support for at least for a little bit longer. Yeah, that way people can use the TypeScript playground. True. Yes. No idea how much I love TypeScript playground. And it's uh, gotten improvements recently as well, thanks to some work from our new team member Orta. So it's been really awesome to see. You should all try it out. Yeah, it's what we use when we're trying to figure out how to type something internally. We pass around shared playgrounds between us. Mm-hmm. It's always fun. So I'm glad that it goes beyond just the team, actually. Yeah, just obsessively staying on topic, I should say. It would be really cool if you could pick nightlies in the playground. So I noticed that you can pick versions now. And if you can pick nightlies two days from now, you'll be able to play with private fields, right? Two things there. So uh, what is it called again? We are working on getting nightlies into the playground. So that's on Orta's plates. I don't know what the status is right now, but he has been looking into it. And I think like what it comes down to is, you know, look into some CDN or ping NPM directly or something like that, and then just get the latest version of TypeScript if the user requests it. Andrews came back from like a three-week vacation, and that was the first question he had for me, I think. Or um, be able to open up PRs in the playground, because I noticed on Wes Wiggum's PR for negated types, people had all these questions about how it worked. 
and all they had to do was clone it and try it. But there's just that barrier to entry. So half the discussion was, this is how it works. And if they could have done it in the playground, it would have been a lot clearer. Oh, yeah. We're actually working on some different infrastructure to handle that. So I think actually Wes himself is working on this, where we'll be able to, from a PR, tell our helpful TypeScript bot to publish a one-off version to NPM. So you'll be able to say, like, TypeScript bot, make this available on NPM or something. And then you can do, like, NPM install TypeScript at experiment-nightly-negated-types or something. And then even open that up in VS Code, because VS Code is really good at using the, the local TypeScript install. Nice. Yeah, that'll be handy. What's the semantic difference between the two different public fields? All right. So TypeScript has had, uh, let's just call them field initializers for a long time. So this is like in the class body, you can say, you know, foo equals 10. And when TypeScript downlevels this, what it's been doing since its very first release is writing this.foo equals 10 as like the first line in your constructor. The current public fields proposal moving through the committee has the same syntax. You'll say foo equals 10 in your class body. And what follows sounds like the same thing, but is not. So the ECMAScript spec has two different operations. Let's say putting a property on an object. There is set and there is define. Set is what happens when you say object.property equals value. So look up the property on the object and look for the property definition. And if there's a setter, then the value goes through the setter and like the setter code runs and, and who knows what happens, right? Define property is closer to calling object.define property. So if you have an object and you call object.define property on object, comma, quote, prop, comma, some, you know, a property descriptor, that's going to skip the setter on the object. So the question that the committee had to consider was, when you say foo equals 10 in your class body, is that a set? Is it as if you had written this dot foo equals 10 in your constructor body? Or is it the same as if you had called object dot define property, this comma foo comma property descriptor? There are, I think, strong arguments to be had in both camps. Like I said, trying to not be prescriptivist, I will uh, describe them both. So the set philosophy is basically, it looks like it's sugar for the thing that you've been doing your whole life, which is writing this.foo equals 10 in the constructor body. So it should behave like the thing it's being created as sugar for. This also has the advantage that if your base class has a setter, you might expect to go through that setter for that property. You might not. I think that's ultimately what's under contention here. And the fact that TypeScript and other transpilers have been producing this kind of code approximately forever is kind of evidence that it's not extremely against people's intuition, right? Like it's it's close enough to people's intuition that I've never seen a bug report about it. So that's set. Define, I think the compelling case here is like, Define semantics are how all other declarations in JavaScript work. So if you have an object literal and you say curly foo colon 10, close curly, that doesn't go through any base class setters. Now, there is no base class, but maybe you think of the object prototype as the base class. And there's no ambiguity that if you say foo colon 10 in your object literal, that the value of foo is definitely going to be 10. And classes should provide you that exact same certainty when you write an initializer. Because if you wanted to go through the base class setter, you should have just written this.foo equals 10 in the constructor body because like, if there's two syntaxes, they should do two different things. 
So that's the debate, and it seems like things are landing on the define side of things, which is unfortunate for TypeScript because we've been shipping set for a very long time. And there are a few other observable differences, but there's actually a really big problem with those base class setters because TypeScript doesn't even like, if you like emit DTS for a class, we don't track whether it's a property or a setter or a getter setter pair, of course. So not only are we breaking your semantics, we can't tell when we're breaking your semantics, which is the absolute worst position to be in as a type checker and transpiler. And we need to do two things at once, which is like not runtime break your programs on our next release, which is like the absolute worst thing we can do. But we also can't diverge from ECMAScript semantics forever. We need to do the same thing eventually. So we're figuring out the migration strategy there. Uh, there will almost certainly be a command line flag involved because this is we only add command line flags when we're in the worst of all situations, and this is definitely one of them. So it'll probably be something like legacy class field emit or something. There will probably be a transitional error that shows up for a couple of TypeScript versions and says, it looks like you're about to stomp on your base class setter. Seems like a bad idea. Maybe don't do that. And then that error will eventually go away, and maybe there'll be a flag for like, warn me when I'm destroying a base class setter and don't realize it? I don't know. So that's the set versus define thing in a nutshell, and we're still trying to figure out exactly what our transition strategy will be. Yeah, I'd say both arguments for set and define both seem correct. <laughs> both solid arguments. <laughs> that makes things easy, right? So, you know, this is an example of kind of a situation where it made a lot of sense for TypeScript to kind of jump ahead. And I know this was you know, this started a while ago, and TypeScript has been a lot more obsessed with being on par with uh, ECMAScript proposals. So it doesn't seem like it's going to be like this semantic problem isn't going to be a huge deal in the future. But is that something that could happen? Well, there are similar sort of like points of contention for other proposals like optional trading. I'm actually helping the champion group right now with optional chaining, and so I'm going to be presenting that and knowledge coalescing in the next meeting. So optional chaining, you, you might have seen this thing called the question dot operator or the Elvis operator or, or whatever, but the idea is this new operator checks whether or not the thing on the left side is null or undefined, and if it is, then everything that comes after it is just going to be undefined. And otherwise, you actually try to get the next property. So if you have like foo question mark dot bar, you'll first see if foo is null or undefined. And if it is, then the entire expression gets evaluated to undefined. So you never actually try to reach in and get the bar property. And if it is there, you know, if it's not a null or undefined, you actually do try to get the bar property. And so this means you don't witness side effects from like getters being triggered, like bar, if it's that's a getter, then you'll never trigger that. But it's supposed to help propagate missing values out. So like you might have written, you know, patterns like if a and a dot b and a dot b dot c and a dot b dot c dot d, then you do something with a dot b dot c dot d, right? And this helps like avoid many of those intermediate checks if they never need to happen. So that feature, you know, has a couple of points of contention, but like I think we're mostly settled on them. And then there's knowledge coalescing, which is like another similar feature, which handles like, you know, it's kind of like the double bar or operator. So like with or you say like foo or bar. Typically, that's to say like if foo is defined or like something like that, 
Right, if it's falsy, right? <laughs> yeah, that... if, if foo is falsy, then you'll go with bar. But the problem with that is, like, a lot of the time you'll get zero or the empty string or, like, false. And really, you wanted those to actually have, like, meaning. You actually wanted to check whether or not you had a missing. So the syntax with this is the double question mark. So it'll be A, question mark, question mark, B. And, and the semantics are simply if A is exactly null or exactly undefined, then return B, otherwise it's A. So, like, you know, in, for optional chaining, I think, like, there's another feature that is kind of going along with it for the ride, which is called optional call. And I think a lot of people would prefer that, you know, we separate the proposal out, but it feels like, based on, you know, just compromise, the best way to move forward is to have both going forward. And then nullish coalescing has another similar argument, which is, like, um, should that have the same precedence as the OR operator? Like, because people are going to try to replace their OR operators with double question marks. And then there's this other argument, which is like, well, four out of like the other seven languages that have a similar operator, or like not even four, like most of the other languages use it with a different precedent. Let's just go with that. And the compromise has been just like, don't allow mixing the two together. <laughs> and so like, from that perspective, like a lot of it is to be involved with TC39 and to come to compromises and then leave the design space open in cases where we can. From the texture perspective, we're, we're a lot more conservative about this now, right? Like I think that was the root of your question, like can we land in a situation where TypeScript diverges? And I think, you know, we might need to be more careful moving forward in general. Like wh when do we implement things, right? So right now the answer is stage three. We need to wait. Otherwise, things can go through a lot of flux, and we, you know, we might end up having users shoot themselves in the foot by depending on behavior that isn't the case anymore. We'd be the ones shooting them in the foot in that case. Right. Well, we'd be handing them the gun to shoot them. So, well, I don't know. There's a lot of guns involved, and like they're all pointed at our users' feet, and it's not good. I just want to go back to optional chaining real quick. Like, I think there's actually some like the knowledge coalescing operator. I think. Apart from the precedence thing, you could have like 20 programmers guess it at semantics and on like all 20 of them would be correct. The optional chaining, I think, is actually, there's a lot of weirdness there. Something we said was the rest of the expression becomes undefined. And actually defining the scope of what the rest of the expression means turns out to be kind of weird. Like one of the behaviors is if you have a question mark b dot c, that dot c access, like its operand is a question mark dot b. So... Should that just express that? Is, do you want an exception from this or not? Like, if you say a question mark dot b dot c and a is undefined, well, then a question mark dot b is undefined. So now you're saying undefined dot c, and that's an exception, right? So, like, I would call that the first guess semantics that you might think this thing should have. But, you know, if you wrote a question mark dot b dot c, probably you wanted the whole thing to become undefined, maybe. I think it maybe depends on whether your mental model of property access is like, from someone who looks at syntax trees all day's point of view, or like someone who just writes code all day, the proposed behavior is that the whole expression turns into undefined, which I think is like better from an ergonomics perspective, but more confusing from a spec author or spec interpreter's perspective. It really goes to the like, I think optional chaining was the highest upvoted issue until we just locked it because people wouldn't stop telling us to implement it ahead of time. And it's really like a an instructive tale of like, I think if we had implemented that, I don't know that we would have added the follow-on undefined behavior or not. And if we guess wrong, like that's an extremely hairy situation to recover from, right? And I think the class fields example 
we sat design meetings with the with the class fields, and no one ever said like, should we call object.define property instead of setting the thing in the constructor? Because like it was ES3, there wasn't object.define property. Like there was nothing to discuss, right? So like even though the semantics can look obvious out of the gate, what the committee ends up doing seven years later might be completely different. It might not be. And like we've guessed correctly a few times and in the class fields we guessed wrong and I think it's going to incur some substantial pain to a lot of people. And that's why I'm like glad we held off on optional chaining even though it's like something that our users really want, something that I really want, something that uh, I think everyone really wants, right? Is that something you still have to guess even at stage three? Kind of some of the nitty-gritty bits? In theory, no. Like, if it's at stage three, that stuff really should not be changing. It shouldn't be. Usually the only, like, real feedback... The intent for stage three is you're only getting feedback from implementers and users of the feature. And so, like, if you find that something is extremely painful as a user, then, like, it can come up, right? But it's usually, like, not taken lightly as a, oh, well, I heard, like, one person say this, right? Like, so maybe we should reconsider... It would have to be, like, unusably bad. I think so, but, like, I'm not willing to, like, go out on and make a statement that, like, things are impossible to change to stage three. But I think there is, like, a certain bias towards, you know, this is, this is like, to hear out implementer feedback, right? That's usually what holds weight at stage three, is, like, we can't actually implement this easily. Say so TypeScript's an implementer, right? Like, <laughs> We are, actually. You should hopefully give them that feedback as part of the... That whole process. And I think we can, right? You know, Babel and TypeScript are both uh, compilers. And the question's been asked like years ago, like, do these count as implementers? They do. And because Babel is willing to actually take on early stage proposals, that's sort of like an easy win for champions of features to like say like, hey, I got a you know thing in Babel. So like, here's a proof of concept of like down leveling this thing to an older version of ECMAScript. And then if you get one engine on board, that's like two implementations, and then you can like progress forward in some cases. I think we're technically only allowed to count as a second implementer. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> At least one browser. A real runtime and a fake runtime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, about optional chaining, I think I can see why it's a popular request for TypeScript users, because the alternative seems to be some really stringy thing, like lodash.get. And the best you can get from that when you're looking up inside an object by having a special string that has lots of dots in it is in any or an unknown. And so I think if you're used to writing typed code, it's a really nice feature. And I was wondering how many future ECMAScript proposals will be influenced or affected by so many JavaScript users working in a, a typed environment? Yeah, I think that's a good point about like it's easy to see pain points in terms of the language when you're like i can't do this without type loss right like type loss seems like it's a good driving force for what we work on or what we address next and clearly the answer is that types are just coming to javascript right <laughs> I, th I think we had a couple guests on that said no so i'm not sure <laughs> do you want a 45 minute rant from me <laughs> I, about that i don't know why type annotations can come to javascript so in python the Python runtime, I think until relatively recently, did not understand type annotations. It just threw them out. But the parser was aware of them, and it knew where to throw things out. And I think if we were to get closer to types in JavaScript, or maybe never get there, but get huge value for users, 
it would be through considering type annotations as a form of comment, almost. This is just some, and then Flow and TypeScript are free to interpret it however they like. But you get the huge advantage of your TypeScript compilation time for being able to run your code going down to zero. I think some people have been even arguing, like, don't use TypeScript, use the documentation that technically uses TypeScript behind the scenes and identifies what types they are. Right, js.com and checked code. Uh, Daniel, what do you think of JS doc? Oh, what do they call them? Type declarations? Do you want to write a type def live on the podcast? So a while back, I was trying to make the argument that we really should consider trying to come up with a more reasonable JS doc syntax for... JS doc is super underspecified. So like, what if we actually gave a couple of alternatives of JS doc syntax that like TypeScript could understand and that would mean like every editor that uses TypeScript could understand as well. And this would be like extremely specialized towards understanding type annotations the way that most modern JavaScript type checkers understand. And like the way that I explained this was just by in a design meeting actually saying like, does anyone here actually know how to write a type def? Because we support the syntax and like we have the expert on the team of parsing it and I'm just like writing it up there and he's like, no, 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 move one side to the end of it. No, 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 the name comes second. And the first thing that you want is the type. Oh, and that has to be in curly braces. Oh, wait, maybe it doesn't need to be in curly braces. But basically, we're talking about the XKCD about uh, there are now 19 competing standards, except instead of standards, it's de facto standards. Because, <laughs> I mean, TypeScript is a like de facto standard for running JS doc at this point. And there are many others. And it's hard to square that circle. Yeah, I think the argument that I was trying to make was, you know, nowadays it feels like the number one reason you would actually write JS doc, unless you like you work in Google and you're like forced to, but like the number one reason you would do it is for like IntelliSense and like uh, the tooling that you get in your editors, more so than actually generating a documentation web page or website for your public API. Now that's like a legitimate use case, but everything else feels extremely underspecified otherwise. It is kind of like that XKCD, but also, like, you know, I still feel a little bit this way, right? Like, you either let, like, these other 14 competing ad hoc standards that don't really exist languish, and then no one knows how to use them, or you invest in something that, like, actually does have some sort of well-known intended behavior, and you tell people how to use that, and then it just grows out of like people wanting to use it. So that's kind of my perspective on it, and I'm still okay with us like investing, but I think our decision was to hold off at the time. Hey, it's something that's probably obvious to everyone on this call, but I found out uh, was not immediately obvious to new people in TypeScript, was that the TypeScript compiler, language service, parser, they all understand JS doc, just like they understand types in a TypeScript file and they make use of this type um, information. So when we say that there's IDE support for JS doc, it's something a lot richer than just syntax highlighting. You actually get completions out of it. People sort of take it for granted, but like when we built out TypeScript, we were taking lessons, and this is just like a thing in Microsoft in general that we understand. When you're building a language, you don't build the tooling separately and as, as an afterthought you build it as part of the language itself nowadays. So when you build a compiler, you're building a platform for something that can power the editor experience. And we did this for TypeScript. 
And then we asked, like, hey, so what's our story for JavaScript support and editors? And we realized, you know, in a lot of cases, we were re-implementing all the same stuff in our editors for JavaScript. And while TypeScript already understands, like, some JavaScript syntax, what if we just had a shared code base? And so TypeScript can support JavaScript, and to give good completions, it uses DTS files and then the presence of JS.comments. And JS.comments, a lot of people don't realize this, but they don't just contain like comments about your variables and your declarations. They actually contain types for your parameters. You can actually say what the type is of a variable in JS.com. So TypeScript understands that, and it provides completions and all that, not just for TypeScript, but for your JavaScript files. And you can also turn on type checking with like this check.js uh, option or this TS check comment at the top of your file. And so like as time went on, we asked ourselves like, hey, how can we make this richer? How can we make this better? Can we understand more patterns in JavaScript? And so, you know, in TypeScript we have this basic language that we've laid out all the syntax for. And it has, you know, these very declarative forms. Like if you want to export something, use ES6 export forms, like export, function, foo, whatever. And when we're, when we're in a, a JS file, we try a very heuristics-based approach where we understand certain patterns. Like if you see module.exports.foo equals some function, we actually take a guess and say, that's probably something you mean to export. So TypeScript like, goes pretty far in trying to understand your JavaScript, even though it's like not very ES6-ish or like TypeScript-ish in a lot of cases. And so the, the question, I think the topic that you alluded to before about like type defs and whatnot is like, yeah, we enable all this stuff for J understanding JS doc, but JS doc is still very like cumbersome to write a lot of the time. And you quickly see this for like a, a basic declaration of a type, like annotating a function is okay, annotating a variable is okay, but getting in, into like things that TypeScript is specialized for is a little bit difficult. Yeah, and for me, working in code base where types were in mind from the start, what I tend to see is a bunch of files called things right. like type.ts, where they have the TypeScript code base is not the only one um, where I've seen that. I think it's really helpful because as a code reader going to a code base, I can go to one file and see these are the core concepts for me to understand in order to work in this code base. And if it's difficult to pass interfaces between files, you're missing out on that big advantage for code readers. Yeah. I found out this is not only done in the TypeScript world, it's done in like many statically typed worlds where you're like you're not discouraged from having multiple types within a given file. So you often see like this types.ts or like declarations.hs or whatever. Like I think it's a common pattern in, in languages like maybe Java or C sharp where you usually have like one class per file, maybe this is like a little bit less common. Having a lot of JS doc type defs in one file gets to add up, I think was, where are we going with that one? I actually wasn't sure if it was possible to export a type doc from one file to another, but I know that I'm constantly importing and exporting TypeScript interfaces. Yeah. Oh, yes. And actually that's a, that's a pattern. You can like, to make it easy on yourself, you can declare everything in like one big TS file and then like use a type import from a JS file and that way that, that 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 ends up being what I usually do just because it's like such a pain otherwise. I wrote a really basic like node app a couple months ago and that was the approach I took just so that I wouldn't need a compile step. <laughs> Sounds funny, but like I think I was just trying to get into the 
trying to like understand what a user who is writing a node app who doesn't want to compile like what that experience is like and it was good because i found a lot of bugs along the way so hopefully like whoever runs into that is going to have a much better time than i did and it's gotten a lot better since then one thing that we didn't mention was the typescript compiler's support for private fields and javascript files the the really interesting thing for me as an implementer was that in typescript you have to declare all of your fields but in JavaScript, you do not, unless they're private fields. And so that was an interesting difference where I had to, in the implementation special case for TypeScript's JavaScript support. That's actually a good point. I, uh, maybe it's kind of an interesting explanation of the, the private fields themselves that you can't just set them in your constructor body like you're used to. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of why I think it's interesting to call them like identifiers. You know, that's why I found that interesting. And that, you know, like, it's all because of scoping, right? You know, because it rides the chain until it finds a, a declaration rather than uh, assigning it to the most immediate value of this that it's inside of, right? Yeah, it was to keep the scoping rules simple. And I don't think the intention there was just to make the, the spec easy to write. I think the intention was, there was, I believe, the idea that certain performance optimizations would be enabled by encouraging these things to be declared. Yeah, you get the entire memory structure all in place right off the bat as well. Yeah, no, it's a fun, it's a fun little quirk of the hash fields. Yeah, another um, interesting question that came up. So I mentioned JavaScript support for these things. I learned from Daniel that when you're thinking about TypeScript support for stuff, you have to think not just about the language, but about the type language. If you have an interface, and the interface has a field called foo, and nobody has exported the type of the of the field foo. In your types, you can write the name of the interface, and then in bracket syntax, like array indexing or object lookup syntax, you can put the string foo, and then you can get the type of that field. We don't yet have a way to do that for private fields, because we weren't sure what this should look like. You can't use a string with a hash in it, because those are already allowed to be regular properties. You can do that with computed fields. And we couldn't really, dot would be an odd choice because you can't use dot for regular properties. So there's this question about how to represent it. And I think we decided to wait on picking a syntax for it because with the decorators proposal, there might be an idea of some stringy way of talking about private names. And it would be nice to have the TypeScript stringy representation of private fields be similar to that. I feel bad for making you specialize that error message now. I feel like I've scarred you somehow. Oh, uh, what error message was I the supposed one with to like specialize? Three Maybe I didn't do it. Nested within each other. Oh yeah, that one was really really interesting. So that that was where uh, most of the effort for the PR went, and it was actually self-started originally, because I looked at what Chrome Canary did. And I opened a bug with Chrome on it, and they said that they would fix it. So it's it's not like this is the accepted long-term answer. And Chrome is way ahead on implementing private fields. But if you have a class nested inside another class, and you shadow the private name, and you try to do a lookup, which is then a lookup with the wrong private name, um, Chrome Canary's error message is not found. And that's actually by far the most straightforward thing that you could do. And if we were to delete about 300 lines from the TypeScript implementation now, that's exactly what TypeScript would do as well. So you want us to be more conformant between implementations, right? 
You want the error messages to be just as bad across the board while I'm hearing. <laughs> no, I, I want them to be to be beautiful. And so, however, even if you say that this private name is is shadowed, Daniel pointed out that that's still not the most obvious error message. And so his suggestion was, don't just say that it's shadowed. Say, this is the one that we looked at, and this is the one that you probably meant, and actually point to them. And I think that it's so rare that people are going to hit deeply nested classes and the shadowing thing that somewhat breaks a lot of people's mental model for how private fields might work. That TypeScript can add so much value by telling them exactly what happened so that there's no confusion. I think that's really great value add. And it makes for really great demos for the record, so... I mean, I'm like half joking, but but actually, you know, it is nice to know if you are learning about a feature for the first time and you're trying to like understand, hey, why is it not working this way? Or like, what happens when I do this? A really good error message that explains why something may not be working is it goes such a long way. It, it is really nice to have. I'm a really big proponent of this approach where both really good error messages and quick fixes that can fix those errors, those help beginners a lot because a lot of people don't just read our handbook end to end. Actually, I would say most people don't just read any sort of like programming guide beginning to end. Uh, they just start writing some stuff, see what works, and then say, oh, this error message is crap or like this error message is really good. And then they actually learn the language and they, they appreciate it and they can they can advocate for the language too. And ultimately, community is what makes or breaks a language in terms of just like, you know, sustainability, I think. So you want to invest in those things. Yeah, so Sebastian McKenzie said that TypeScript is his best friend because of the community. Yes, yeah. You know, I, I think, I, I legitimately think there's a lot to that. And so community, 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 community. That's why this podcast exists. Yep, exactly. And, and we're grateful for the community every step of the way. Cool. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. Uh, so Daniel, Ryan, Max, I really want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, do you have any parting words before we, we close out? Something about nested classes, oh, maybe? Nest your classes, yeah. private fields. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said I wouldn't be prescriptivist. <laughs> I lied. Right. Well, cool. Thanks, everyone, and stay type safe. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We've got a good thing going on. Bye, 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 bye.